The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Worship our God by hearing from His Word. We're in Leviticus 19 this morning. Leviticus 19 verses 1 through 18. Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 1, let's now hear God speak to us through His Word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, am, for I the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after. And anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur guilt because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, this concludes the reading of God's word. May he now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Well, as we see in our passage today, God calls us to be holy as he is holy. Now, many things come to our mind when we think of the word holy. Now, perhaps for some of you, you're, when you hear the word holy, you picture a monk in a monastery who is isolated from the world and is studying his Bible in Latin and chanting sacred songs. Now perhaps you think of Simeon the Stylite from the 5th century AD. You may have heard of him. 
He's the one that built this pillar at the edge of the Syrian desert and lived on top of it for six years. says, look, if I'm going to be holy, I need to get away from all you unholy people. And so I'm going to live uh, in the desert away from everybody. But not even that was holy enough. What he had to do is he had to make it higher. He made it 60 feet high and he lived on it for another 30 years. Now, some people could think holiness is summed up in the mantra, don't drink, dance, or chew, or go with girls who do. We can laugh at some of these things, but that alone does not answer the question, what does it mean to be holy? Thankfully, God doesn't leave us wondering or guessing. He goes on to tell us exactly what it means to be holy in our passage today. And we see what it means to be holy is to keep His law. We see the aspects of holiness today. We're going to look at eight of them. And we see each one is based on one of the Ten Commandments. And so that's going to be our outline for today. Eight aspects of what it looks like to be holy. The first is this. It pertains to the Fifth Commandment. Look at the first part of verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. So an aspect of being holy is keeping the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and mother. And now God, in in this passage, he doesn't lay out the the Ten Commandments in the order in which he lays them out on the, the tablet stones. But if you think about it, God begins with this commandment here because this is how we all begin, don't we? At least I'd hope you'd think that. That we grow up under our parents' authority, raised by them. And so learning to respect all legitimate authority begins here. Disrespecting one's parents will lead to disrespecting all legitimate authority. And here this verse says that He must revere his father and mother. And this means to have great respect, to to highly regard them, that they carry a lot of weight in your life. You, after all, did receive your very life from them. Now, when it comes to children who are not adults, who are underage, who have not left their father and mother, uh, you children in here, you need to obey your parents in everything except for sin, of course. When it comes to those who are now adults, uh, no longer living under their parents' authority, uh, we are still to honor them, to treat them with respect, and to care for them when they get old. That's part of this honoring them. Now, here's the difficulty. We live in a sin-cursed world, don't we? Our parents are not always honorable. They don't always do the things that are for our well-being. They sin against us. Uh, They can make life hard for us. So when God speaks this, is he only talking about just as long as your parents have earned it? Or does God speak this in a context knowing that we all have sinful parents? God knows that there's no perfect parents. And so to honor sinful parents requires to be graciously minded. Uh, to to forgive and cover a multitude of sins. Now, for some, it's more difficult. For some of you adults in here, and you're, you're married, you have kids, you might have to keep a distance uh, from some of your parents because of the conflict in order just to be at peace. There's a lot of difficulty in this life. 
But there should be no hatred or vitriol in your heart. Uh, Rather, you should desire for their good. Be praying for repentance on their part and praying that if the Lord grants it, you would have a better relationship uh, with them. And also for us parents in here, or for anyone in a position of authority, in a, in a position of authority, let us remember that that comes with great responsibility. May we seek God's grace and wisdom to take our responsibility seriously, not demand respect, but live honorable lives. Authority is given for the benefit, protection, and nourishment of those under it. Now, the second aspect of what it looks like to be holy pertains to the fourth commandment, the second part of verse 3. And you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Now, Sabbath simply means rest. It's a day of rest. It's a day of ceasing normal activity, especially uh, labor, for special purposes or observances. Uh, this is like our holidays. Think about the holidays in our culture. The holidays in our culture is when everything kind of shuts down. Uh, certain holidays, banks are always shut down. It doesn't matter. It could be like, you know, candy day and the bank shut down, it seems like. But holidays such as Christmas and New Year's, places close. Why do places close on holidays? Well, that's because even our culture understands that a special holy day, holiday, a day that's set apart, not like the rest of the days, in order to distinguish that, you cease normal activity and labor. And also, we gather together on those days, don't we? Think about Christmas. Think about the holidays. People tend to feel more lonely if they don't have anyone to celebrate with. We ask questions like, do you have anywhere to go for Christmas? Because it's more sad when you don't have anyone to celebrate a holiday with. Well, That's the way it is when it comes to a special holiday or holy day. Normal activities cease, especially labor. We gather together because there's a special purpose. And that is what the Sabbath is for God's people. It's setting aside ordinary activities, especially labor, in order to gather to observe something special. God's finished work. Now, you'll notice that it says Sabbaths here in the plural. It's it's in the plural. Under the Old Covenant, there were multiple Sabbaths. There's, of course, the Sabbath day, the last day of the week back then, which began not with Moses, but with creation. But there were also other Sabbaths that were added on to the Sabbath day. There were first day Sabbaths. There are Sabbaths surrounding Old Covenant feasts and festivals. Uh, There were land Sabbaths. There were seven-year Sabbaths for the land. So there were many Sabbaths. Under the Old Covenant, God commanded His people to keep all of them. Now in our day, since about the 1960s, uh, the belief has become prevalent that there is no longer any Sabbath day under the New Covenant. And passages such as Colossians 2.16 are appealed to, which the ESV translates as, Uh, Let no one pass judgment on you with regards to 
uh, a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And the ESV and the, the NAS and the NIV do the same thing. They translate that as Sabbath singular and even capitalize it. So it kind of connotes this idea of it's the Sabbath day. However, in the Greek, it's plural. It's new moon and Sabbaths. And it's actually an exact phrase that comes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that refers to these specific additional Old Covenant Jewish ceremonies. Not the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day precedes Moses. Goes even before uh, the Jews. Goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. Even before sin entered the world, there was a day set apart that was holy. Sinless Adam in paradise was to keep the Sabbath. Now the day has changed to the first day of the week in light of the finished work of Christ. And we are going to uh, discuss that when we get to Leviticus 23. It's now called the Lord's Day. Why the day changed. It's in light of the finished work of of Christ and his resurrection, but setting aside one day and seven for a holy rest is how God made creation. It's part of the fabric and pattern and rhythm of creation. It's, it's one of the commandments that were put on uh, the, 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 the tablets of stone that God gave to Moses. God did not write any of the ceremonial laws on those tablets, but he did write the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment on there. It's what's referred to as a creation ordinance. A creation ordinance is that which is ordained at creation. It's part of the fabric and makeup, the DNA of creation, and remains as long as creation remains. Uh, The other creation ordinances are labor and marriage. And you can include in their gender as well, male and female. Isn't it interesting that that is exactly what our culture attacks? Back in the 1960s, if you ask anyone who was, who was around back then, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you that everything used to be closed, uh, and basically before 1960, and that it was controversial. It was controversial for the NFL to say, we're going to have our games on Sunday, and for Montgomery Wards to start being open on that day. That's what our culture used to be like. Everything used to be shut down on the Sabbath, and then the world says, "No, we don't need that." And then, oh, now comes now we can, now we have the right to abort our own kids, and the culture continues to go downhill. Now marriage is is redefined, and so this is one of those creation ordinances that the creation has attacked. And so it's God's people who are to be holy. Uh, an important aspect of us being holy is to keep the Lord's day holy. When we gather together, the third aspect of what it means of what it looks like to be holy is the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. Look at the first part of verse four. Uh, Do not turn to idols. So an idol is simply a created thing that we put in place of God, a created thing that we put in place of God is to take a good thing from creation and make it an ultimate thing. Uh, Essentially, all idols are taking something that God has created as good and exalting it to the place of God. As Romans 1 says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served 
the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And what this looks like is where we place our ultimate hope and happiness in it and look to it to deliver us and satisfy us ultimately. Uh, We know when we're committing adultery, when we are willing to sin to get it, uh, when we get sinfully angry, when it is withheld from us, when we are not content without it, or when we are living in fear, that we're trusting something else to protect us that really can't ultimately protect us, and so we get, we get afraid. Is this thing going to be able to protect me or not? And as Luther said, whatever occupies our hearts and minds is our God. And I think even as we're talking about this, we're, we're recognizing, Ugh, I'm really not that holy. And we're going to be reminded as we go along here that I need a righteousness not of my own in order to be justified before God. Yes, we are to pursue holiness, but may we not rely on that holiness in any way for our standing before God. Otherwise, we are toast. Uh, We are thankful for Christ and His perfect work on our behalf. But there are visible idols as well, not just idols of the heart. There's also visible idols, which brings us to the next aspect of what it means to be holy. That pertains to the second commandment. We see that in the second part of verse 4. We are to not make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Now, obviously, the, the material doesn't ultimately matter, matter, right? As if to say, you can make a god as long as it's made of wood and not cast metal. The material is immaterial, I guess pun intended, because uh, this brings them back to the golden calf when they made it. Uh, they made it out of this, this gold and cast metal. And it, what's interesting about that, this visible representation of God, That's what this is getting at. What's interesting about the golden calf is that they called it Yahweh. They said, this is God. They didn't say, hey guys, let's worship another God. Forget Yahweh. Let's let's worship um, George the goat or something like that. Rather, they said, I guess it would be George the cow. Rather, they said, no, we want to worship Yahweh. And so we're going to make a visible representation of Yahweh. And why did they do that? Well, because they said, we don't know where Moses is. We don't see God. Uh, We need someone that's going to lead us. We don't trust that he's with us. And so this is how these visible representations come about. It's when we struggle to walk by faith and instead want to walk I sight. I need some assurance, some visible assurance that God is there. But as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And so Peter assumes that these faithful Christians of the first century have not seen Jesus, neither are they now seeing Jesus. But he says you don't need to see Jesus in order to have faith in him because we walk by faith, not by sight. Now the principle underlining the second commandment is not merely don't make visible images. Rather the principle is that we are to worship God in the way 
he prescribes. First commandment, worship God. This is who you are to worship. Second commandment, this is how. This is the way. God determines the way in which we are to worship him. So it's no surprise that when the Israelites set aside the second commandment to make an image, that they also worship him in the way that they wanted to. They ate and drank and rose up to play. And it's all these overtones of sexual immorality and, and debauchery and, and drunkenness and gluttony. Uh, this is all worshiping God according to man's own will rather than God's. So the second commandment calls us to worship God only in the way he prescribes. And so we go on to read in verses eight through, or 5 through 8 of our passage of the instructions with regards to the peace or communion offering where God says, as with all the sacrifices, you need to do what I say with regards to this. And God doesn't say, you know, here's some basic outline, now do whatever you want. Rather, God even gives details in how he is to be worshipped. Now, I think the reason why God mentions only the sac- this sacrifice of the five sacrifices we see in Leviticus is because this one involves eating with others. In order to eat this whole animal within two days, as was required, any of you who have hunted know you just don't, you can't just eat an animal in two days. It lasts you know, throughout the year. You need to bring others with you. Uh, you need to invite others. That was part of the point. Have communion with, with others. And so this, this serves you know, as a good segue from the second commandment to the, to the next one God focuses on, which is the eighth. Uh, do not steal, which also involves sharing and giving. And so that's the next aspect of what it looks like to be holy. And that's the Eighth Commandment. And we see that explicitly mentioned in the first part of verse 11. Do not steal. So don't unlawfully take what does not belong to you. Now, if you remember from our study of the Ten Commandments, that the uh, commandments are summary statements with broad application. So, so the words do not murder, do not steal, etc., do not al- alone encompass all that that commandment entails. It has broad application. And part of that broad application is not only a negative, do not steal, but also a positive aspect. Be generous and share. We see this, for example, with the Apostle Paul in his in. in him writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, where he commands the thief to no longer steal, but to do what instead? To work so that you may share with those who are in need. That's part of the Eighth Commandment. Not only a negative aspect, but a positive aspect. And this is what we see in verses 9-10 through 10 of our passage, where it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field, right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bearer. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. So in this agrarian culture, most everyone had a farm uh, from which they would get their food. They didn't have a Blair's or a Costco. Back then, they had to farm and they they had to uh, they had to harvest and they had to work hard for that. But they were not to harvest the whole field. Uh, rather, they were to leave some of their field for the poor to harvest. 
and this included their vineyard. Now, this doesn't mean that this only applies to farmers today, or if you are a farmer, then you have to do just this. Rather, the principle here is that we are to be generous, and we are to share with those in need. Not everything the Lord gives us is intended for us. Rather, it is intended that we may glorify God by sharing and giving to others. If there is someone among us who is in need, we are required by the Lord to share what we have to provide for those in need. That's what it means to be holy. And children in here, uh, I want to address you for a moment, especially you who claim to be Christians and have been baptized. Is this the way you think that you want to share? Consider the, uh, the parade that happens in Cody. What, what happens during the parade in Cody? They throw out this candy, don't they? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and as your only thought, I want to get as much as I can. Or is your thinking, you know what? I'm not going to get as much as I can. There's some that's still left over. I'm not going to take that so that maybe others can get it. And that's kind of what it means to not harvest your whole field. I'm going to leave some from others. It's not just about me getting as much as I can get. It's about others also receiving. Because I take delight in sharing with others. So that's part of fulfilling this commandment. It's not about me getting as much as I get, but about me loving others and wanting others to receive. And then we read in verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Uh, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Uh, the word in verse 13 that says oppress means to defraud. So there's two things here. Do not defraud and do not rob. Robbing refers to unlawfully taking something in someone else's possession. Defrauding refers to something in your possession that you're withholding that you should be giving to another. So here wages of a hired worker are withheld. Now back then people were paid a day wage at the end of the day. And so to withhold it until the morning, even though that was a short amount of time, is defrauding them as our passage says here. They were depending on those wages, but it's a violation of the Eighth Commandment to even withhold for a night. And this stealing and defrauding is related to the violation of the Ninth Commandment, which is the next aspect of what it means to be holy, which is uh, we don't bear false witness. We see this at the end of verse 11. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Stealing often involves cheating deceiving, manipulating, even as small as, you know, for some of your children. You know, it's, you, want, you want some extra dessert. You want, you want a, a, another cookie. And so you ask your parents, hey, can I have another cookie? And your parents say, have you already had one? And they don't know the answer. And you go, uh, I forgot. You know, you're lying in order to get more. Well, we are to not lie. We are to not deal falsely. We are to speak the truth in love. We are to be people of integrity and not hypocrites. Now, this leads into swearing falsely by God's name, the third commandment. 
and then bearing false witness about someone under oath. And then in general, that's where the passage goes next. But before we get to swearing falsely by God's name in verse 12, let's consider more in line with the ninth commandment in verses 15 through 16, where it says, You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So doing injustice in court is not rendering a true verdict, condemning those who are innocent, or feeling sorry for the poor. Well, I know they're guilty, but I feel sorry for the person, so uh, we will... We will justify them. We will declare them innocent. But that is breaking the ninth commandment because it's rendering, it's not rendering a true judgment. Now, how do we apply this to our everyday lives unless you're a judge or part of a jury? Well, it is to think rightly, fairly, and even charitably about someone when there's doubt. To not have a critical spirit. And this ties around to not going around as a slanderer, which is to speak evil of others. There should be no gossip group among us. In fact, the positive aspect of the ninth commandment is to seek to protect the good name and reputation of others and to even improve it. And we also want to speak truly of God's name, which is the seventh aspect of what it means to be holy, and that pertains to the third commandment. Verse 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So to swear falsely is to use God's name to make an oath that you don't mean or that you break. Now we can make oaths uh, in, in God's name. In fact, that's what we do when we, when we uh, marry. We, we swear before God uh, our, our vows is what civil authorities do. You just can't do it irreverently or uh, when you don't mean it. You have your fingers crossed or something like that. Uh, we don't regard God's name lightly. And we also, this also includes how we speak of God's name, of who he is. Do we speak truly and rightly about him? Does that matter to us? Do we take that seriously? We're talking about the I am here. Do we regard that as the utmost importance? If it's a violation of the ninth commandment to speak falsely about a human's name, how much more to speak falsely of God's name? Now, an eighth aspect, the final one, of what it looks like to be holy pertains to the sixth commandment. Now, we see in verse 14 uh, that, let's go ahead and read it in verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf, or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. It kind of seems like a strange thing, but what this is getting at is honoring and benefiting the life of another, not taking advantage of them. You know, someone who's deaf can't hear, and so people would say, hey, I, I, I want to kind of make fun of this guy, and I'm going to curse them, and they're not going to even see, you know, hear what I'm saying, or there's a blind person walking around, and I'm going to take this stone, I'm going to put it in front of him, and he's going to trip and fall. I'm going to get a good laugh at his expense, uh, rather than honoring the life of all, and, and seeking to even 
improve upon their life rather than hindering their life. That really is part of the six commandments. And also included with the sixth commandment is what we go on to read in verses 17 through 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your brother, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So God commands us to not hate our brother in our heart. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that this is a violation of the sixth commandment, to have this hatred in our heart. This reveals that keeping the law is a matter of the heart, not just a matter of, of external, uh, overt actions. I think we could think that because we do not express our, our hearts or express what's in our heart, that we don't take vengeance, as verse 18 says, that we're doing well. But as God says here in verse 18, we are to not only take vengeance to act on it, we are also not to bear a grudge in our heart. That is equally sin. Having a grudge is where you are, are secretly angry at someone and hold their faults against them. And that is a sin that needs to be repented of. Now, we may think that we're justified if we were uh, legitimately sinned against. We may hear, don't hold a grudge in your heart. And we, we may think, well, yeah, that just means don't be petty and get mad over silly nonsense issues. But when it comes to having actual, actual sins against us, we may think, well, it's okay for me to hold a grudge. But God is saying that it's always wrong to hold a grudge. Now, grudge doesn't mean that you were hurt, that, that you have raw wounds, that uh, you need to heal, that you've lost trust. Rather, what grudge means is that you have this angry bitterness in your heart, keeping a record of wrong and counting it against someone. And God says rather than holding a grudge in our heart, we are to reason frankly with that person. And I think that's part of it is that we're kind of afraid just to tell others about it. We'd rather just kind of hold it in our heart and continue to hold it against them and then pretend like everything's okay. But then there's difficulties. What if we're not able to tell, talk to that person? What if we have and they wrote us off? What if that sin against us remains and it's never been rectified? Well, this is why it's important to entrust ourselves to God. Uh, the reason we get bitter, the reason we bear a grudge, is because we are not trusting God. In Romans 12, Paul says that uh, when an unbeliever or someone who falsely claims to be a believer sins against us, doesn't say, hey, that doesn't, Paul doesn't say there, it doesn't matter, get over it. Rather, Paul says, no, leave it to the wrath of God. God will repay. There will be justice. God cares about that. That's why he will repay. Now, we can seek protection and utilize the civil authorities. We do not need to be in danger. The sixth commandment demands that our life is protected. But to hang on to sin in our heart, to not let it go, is to say, I cannot let go of this because it feels like then I am giving up justice. But we remember God's promise. God will repay. 
God will not let it go. God will be just. And He will be just in His own wise timing. But being bitter is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And if it's a believer who has sinned against us and we hold a grudge, we are saying that we do not trust God to be at work in that believer to both will and to work for His good pleasure to bring conviction and discipline. Or we are afraid that we might get hurt again. And we are not trusting that whatever God has for us is for our spiritual good. And so we need to try to take matters into our own hand. I need to be in control of the situation because I can't trust God in this. And I have to make sure that I don't get hurt again. And if I get hurt again, then it will be for my spiritual harm. But that is not the case. God will take care of us. God will sanctify those who are His. God will sanctify us even when people sin against us. Because God works out all things for our good. This lack of trust in God only breeds self-love and fear. What if I'm not in control? Then something bad happens to me. I must be in control. And this makes it impossible to fulfill God's command of loving our neighbor as ourselves. And will just be destructive towards us and just eat us away. But consider the love that God has for you in Christ. Has God not been good to you? Has God not brought things about in His providence for your good? Yes, He has not kept you from all suffering. Yes, He has not kept you from all pain. He has not prevented hardship in your life. But He uses all suffering, pain, and hardship for your good. That is, it's used to conform you into the image of His Son. You may not understand how, you may not see it, but we believe it because that is what His Word says. He works out all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. And all things are working for that purpose. This is something He only does for His beloved children. Unbelievers who suffer loss in this life truly suffer loss because they have nothing awaiting them in glory. But since we are being conformed into Christ's image more and more until the day of glory, our suffering is used for our good. As Paul says in Romans 5, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God has poured His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. That is the pivot point right there. Whether or not God has loved you, and has poured that love into your heart by His Spirit. That is why anyone on the face of this planet can say, I rejoice in my sufferings. Because God's love is the pivot point. And this is because God has protected us from that which truly harms us. The wrath and curse of God. And the destruction of our sin. And this is because God has protected us. By standing in our place, condemned. Taking that wrath and curse 
for us, suffering what we should have suffered. He protected us by assuming our own humanity. Think about that. God, without ceasing to be God, becoming a man, so that we would be saved from His wrath, so that we would be saved from our sin, so that we would be brought to a life with Him in eternity. And what did that cost Him? It cost Him suffering. It cost Him suffering the wrath that we deserve for our sin. He did not deserve the suffering He got. We deserve every bit of suffering we get. But Christ stood in our place so that we would never know eternal suffering. And He did this for all our failures. All our failures to keep His holy law. All our failures to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But rather than us suffering the curse and suffering for these sins, Christ suffered for it so that we can know that God doesn't count our sins against us. God doesn't hold a grudge against us. God doesn't hold anything against us. If you are in Christ, God is not angry at you. He is well pleased with you and is forever, not because of anything you have done or will do or will become but because of His eternal purpose to set His love on you and because of the merits and work of Christ. That certificate of debt was nailed to the cross and you bear it no more, but rather you now have His eternal love which has been poured out into your hearts and therefore you have eternal hope. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, help us to believe these sayings. And as we do, help us live holy lives. We want to honor and serve you. We hate our sin. But we know that we will sin until the day we die, so we trust in the merits and righteousness of Christ. And we also trust the promise that sin is no longer our master. And that we want to walk in in manners that glorify you because you have so loved us. You have cared for us. You suffered for us that we may eternally live. Help us, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.